You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with James Ward, the Kotlin Program Manager at Google, co-author of the book First Steps in Flex, and co-host of the podcast Happy Path Programming. We talk about how Kotlin came to be an unexpected hit among Android developers, how some programming languages aim for the evolutionary progress and others aim for the revolutionary progress approach, and how the designs of these languages' package management systems affect the popularity of the languages themselves. And now, evolutionary versus revolutionary languages. All right, James, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, Richard. Great to be on your podcast this time. Yeah. <laughs> super fun. <laughs> the, the roles are reversed. Yeah. Yeah. I sure enjoyed having you on mine. That was super fun. Oh, thanks. I, I enjoyed it too. Yeah. It's nice to talk about rock and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, so something I've always wondered, and I know that you're uh, something of a Kotlin expert, is how did Kotlin end up getting big on Android? Because as I understand it, like JetBrains originally created Kotlin uh, and, and kind of their goals because they make IDEs like IntelliJ. They wanted to make a language that was like going to be really suited for, you know, the IDEs that they were making. And I don't think that they originally were planning to have it be a thing that was going to be big on Android when they were originally yeah. developing it. But it sure ended up being that way. And I'm kind of curious, do you know the story of how that ended <laughs> up happening? Yeah, I I think I know a little bit. I wasn't actually there at the time uh, on the Android team, so um, there are probably people that know a lot more than I do about it. But sure. <laughs> I'll give what I know. But coming back to the the start of that question, which was about JetBrains creating a programming language, which I remember at the time when they when they announced. Kotlin, I was like, what in the world are they doing creating a programming language? Like, <laughs> like why them? And yeah. at the time, there was, you know, Scala was was doing pretty well. And I, I don't remember if at the time that I was already into Scala or not, but but then there was another one that was kind of vying for that Java plus plus, kind of the better Java angle, which was uh, Gavin King's language. And now Ceylon. So, so, so it was interesting because Ceylon and Kotlin were kind of announced around the same time. And, and a lot of people thought like, oh, Ceylon is, Ceylon is the, the, the one that's going to win here. Cause why in the world would JetBrains create a programming language? How could this possibly be good? Quick, quick interjection. So I actually did not think you were going to say Ceylon. Now that you mentioned, it, I remember Ceylon. Now, to be fair, I was kind of out of the Java <laughs> community for a while when when this happened. But back in oh man, it's like 2009. I was a professional Java developer, and I remember this language came out. And originally it was called Fan, and then they later expanded it to Phantom. Okay, and that's yeah, what I thought you were going to say was like Phantom. the. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's weird because there was there was definitely these cycles of of new JVM languages, and of right. course, like Closure, like was and Closure ended up obviously having a lot of success in that that realm as well, and, and Scala. But but I think that there was all of the like if you look at a lot of those languages, they weren't the better Java. They they were a whole new thing, you know. And where where Ceylon and Kotlin both focused on just being a better Java, and that was really like the initial the initial push for them. And so, so yeah, initially I was really skeptical, like why in the world is JetBrains creating a programming language? This is not going to go well. <laughs> and then, you know, many years later, I realized like, oh, having great tooling really can differentiate a programming language. And mm-hmm. so, so yeah, so then I think that the, and hopefully people correct us on Twitter if I'm wrong about some of this, but I think that, <laughs> that, the Android team had already switched to IntelliJ um, being the basis for Android Studio mm. before before the switch to Kotlin for them. And so they were already kind of attached to JetBrains. The Android, the platform developer tools were already kind of attached to JetBrains. And, and that was both from the Android team side, but also from the community side. I think there was just a lot of collaboration across those two. So the the way that I've heard it told is that, that a lot of people in the Android community had already picked up Kotlin and started using Kotlin as their better Java to build Android applications. And there was so many benefits to doing so, especially for UI programming, uh, not having to do all the the nasty callbacks and just just you know just a much better syntax for for wiring up uh, UI applications. So so the way that I've heard it told is that that the community was was already excited about Kotlin and doing it, and so 
the the Android folks then we're seeing this happen and the, and the, they themselves, a lot of the leadership in Android are engineers, they're writing code. And so they themselves w- were already doing Kotlin and being like, this is awesome. And so then the announcement came, I think five years ago, where they said that we're going to move to Kotlin, uh, so first supporting Kotlin, and then and then I think I don't remember what the time frame was, but at some point moving to Kotlin being the default. And the the funny thing about the way that I hear people tell the story is they say that at Google I/O when they announced that I don't know if it was they announced they were supporting Kotlin officially or or making it the default, but whenever like the big first Kotlin announcement was at Google I/O, it was like standing ovation, like the crowd was so excited like that they no one had ever seen an io crowd get so excited about something and so that was just like this this huge confirmation that that they were going in the direction that their developers wanted them to go with the platform and so so i think that that kind of set kotlin on a path to you know being the official the, the the primary language of android set it on a path to for the language to grow a lot in that particular space so so yeah and then and then of course it did and it's it has grown a ton there so that's the history as i know it <laughs> that's fascinating <laughs> yeah. wow so so it was kind of a grassroots thing so th- this seems like it reminds me of although it sounds like it was you know very different in how it happened but I mean, there's there's kind of a similar Objective C to Swift, you know, uh, analogy, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Sort of like the yeah. modern, you know, uh, uh, alternative. Yeah. A, a very. And old... I, I think that the developer community on on that side was also extremely excited when they announced, you know, the Swift stuff as well, because God, like I've done Objective C and and I can't get into it, like not not my favorite cup of tea, um, but but Swift is great. I think Swift has a, a lot of really great things in the language, so definitely enjoy writing Swift code a lot more. Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't there either, so I, I don't know what the the reaction was, but certainly I remember a lot of excitement, uh, yeah. at least like from you know the things I was hearing on side channels and stuff when when Swift was announced. But I mean, that was a very top down thing where it was just like you know Apple. I mean, I guess like there's there's like more behind the scenes stuff with Chris Latner and whatnot, and like how it kind of came came to be. But it was like Apple's like this is what we're doing. Everybody follow along. Yeah. As opposed to yeah. this sounds like almost the opposite, where it was just. Google observing that a lot of people were using this because it, it was compatible yeah. and they could and, yeah. uh, and then saying, okay, we're going to follow along actually. Yeah. 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 Pretty and interesting. I think that that does match a lot of what I see in the Android, the way that Android does things is that it is, is not so much of a, a control model. It's a cooperation model. And, and so that's one of yeah. the things I, I like about working on, on Kotlin at, at Android is just, it's, we, you, we have the opportunity to not, we're not often telling developers what to do. We're, we're following what their interests and excitement are and, and seeing where that leads. Yeah. It, it, I wonder if there's going to be a, a migration to Kotlin from Java like in the large, in this, in kind of a similar way that we've seen, like you, I like that phrase you used of like Java plus uh, plus, like all these different <laughs> yeah. languages trying to be that. Yeah, because we've seen kind of a similar thing in JavaScript. Yeah, where yeah, I think TypeScript script was yeah. kind of like a yeah, JavaScript script, plus plus. Yeah. Yeah. TypeScript certainly is, you know, yeah. aspires to be a, a JavaScript plus plus. Yeah, and and it seems like pretty clear at this point that TypeScript is the winner. And yeah. oh yeah, like yeah. And, and it's not just that there's a lot of people who are using it. It's just like, it's, it's very quickly becoming a default. And I made a prediction back in 2019 uh, at a conference that I said that I think the way I phrased it was I predicted that by 2025, there would be more people who are writing TypeScript day to day than who are writing JavaScript without TypeScript, like in the world. Huh? By which date? 2025. Yeah. Yeah. I could get behind that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if that's, if, if, what people think about that. And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, obviously it's one of those things that's hard to measure because it's not like you can just, you know, sample every, every shop in the world, but at least in the sort of like circles that I hear about, that seems to be pretty much already true. But then again, I also know that that's a very biased sample because 
the 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 people I tend to know about are tend to be pretty plugged in and like kind of you know on the more cutting edge type of things. And you got to remember, there's a ton of shops out there that are you know just doing things the way they did them ten years ago yeah. because that's how they've always done it, and they're not really interested in in changing. Yeah. And who knows what percentages those and what percentages <laughs> types yeah. of things that we well, hear it's, about. It's very different goals, I think, for languages that that are aiming to be kind of evolutionary versus revolutionary. Mm. So I would yeah. put rock and unison into the camp of, of pretty revolutionary languages, like really trying Always. to shake up some of the foundations, but not so focused on being this like small incremental step for people. Whereas TypeScript is much more of an incremental step from JavaScript and there's great interoperability. Same thing with Java to Kotlin is you can, you can go into a large Java code base add the Kotlin compiler and add one Kotlin file and reuse all the existing Java, reuse all your jar file dependencies. And so it does create this much easier migration for people who have a large investment in a given language to be able to step into the new thing with a very minimal overhead and change. And right. so it's a very different goal, I think, than 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 other languages. And the, one of the things I love about Rock and Unison and others is that uh, flicks uh, would also put on that list is that they're saying let's let's really evaluate if the foundations we built everything on top of are the right foundations and right. i love that but for people who have a large investment in a given language really hard to move to those more revolutionary um languages and with yeah. with something existing so um but trade-offs on both sides oh for sure yeah i i so this is something that we've been trying to, I guess, uh, mitigate is maybe the right word with rock. So this is not something that I had put a ton of focus on early on, but it's, it's becoming more and more of a focus, which is making it really easy to call rock code and have rock call code on the other side from like any given host language, as long as that language speaks C. Yeah. So yep. that means you got Java, Node.js, you know, yep. a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of options. Yeah. And it's always been possible to do that in Rock, but what we're working on is kind of making the ergonomics of it better, specifically nice. making it so that you can run this command. It's called Rock Glue uh, to generate glue code. And then basically uh, you give it a sort of script that says like, um, let's say I want to I want to go to Java. And uh, that's that Rock script basically um, receives as an argument your program's types, like as a data structure. And it says, okay, well, I'll generate bindings. These are the types that are going to be exposed to Java. Yeah. I will generate bindings between your specific program and Java and, and potentially uh, also like Java types as well. You know, it can kind of spit out like whatever's necessary to make that happen. Yeah. And so now this is not, it can't possibly be as seamless as something like Clojure uh, sure. or Kotlin has. Because yeah. in, th in that case, you, you're literally... Like they're, they're kind of swimming in the same byte code. Exactly. Yeah. So, yep. I mean, they can, they can call back and forth completely seamlessly. Yep. Like you're saying, but the hope is that if the interop's nice enough, then you can at least get to a point where if I'm writing my Java code, I can call a method on a generated class that, that this glue command generated yep. and behind the scenes, that method is implemented using rock. Yeah. But I don't see that. So there is still a boundary. There's still a translation layer. There's still some yeah. performance overhead from switching the data structures around and whatnot. And there's also, of course, a mismatch between Java being an object-oriented imperative language and Rock being <laughs> a purely functional language. Yeah. But it's like, like I said, like we're kind of trying to mitigate that downside yeah. of, you know, yeah. starting from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. I think the easy FFI is kind of the best thing that you can do in that case. And, and it definitely will help people who have, have, you know, an existing code base that they want to be able to have interoperability with. And it's, you're right. It's not as seamless and fluid as, as something that is really built with interoperability as being a, a core feature, whereas right. it is built with, with interoperability being an absolutely core feature. And so, yeah. So, and it, it feels that way. Developers, so at Google, we, I did a talk recently where we talked about how at Google, there's a lot of new Kotlin code being written and it has to work with a lot of Java code and developers are having to context switch between Java and Kotlin. And we actually did a study at Google to study what is the what is the impact of developers having to work basically in two different languages, uh, and we we did that study 
I th- I'm forgetting some of the specifics, but it was like Java and C++ or something like that. And mm-hmm. there was a, a, a pretty large productivity hit to developers who had to kind of work in those two different worlds. And then we did the same study for Java and Kotlin. And what we found was that there was no productivity hit to, to switching between those two languages. And so, you know, for Google, obviously, this is an important <laughs> piece to yeah, the yeah. puzzle. And so, you know, thanks to Kotlin's interoperability and bidirectional interop, like like that, and the language semantics, the language foundations being very similar, like a lot of those things play into that that particular piece. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I wonder. I would love. I mean, obviously, it's like it's hard to. <laughs> first of all, it's probably hard to study something like that in general. It's probably expensive, and you know, it takes a lot of time and so forth. With, but, at Google, I think it's easier because we have the mono repo, and so there oh, we sure. can do all these like analytics around productivity and all the. Uh, we have a lot of our developers work in a cloud IDE, so mm. there's you know additional opportunities for for data collection and studies. So anyways, I think for Google, it is a bit easier to do these kinds of studies than it would be to do against the masses. But That makes sense. I, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, if I could wave a magic wand, something I would love to somehow be able to tease out and, and get you know more precise about would be, so obviously Java and Kotlin are similar, but I wonder like which specific differences are the ones that like at what point do you cross over the threshold into like this is this is causing a noticeable productivity drop yeah Yeah. because like for example i wonder if you would see the same thing about like java and closure i would assume that there's some productivity drop not just because it's syntactically different but because it's different paradigms exactly exactly and that's what that's what i saw in the world of scala is that scala initially purported to be a java plus plus and i think they pretty quickly realized like like that wasn't their message that that was going to work because what people were doing with scala was so different and the way that people were using Scala was so different from what Java developers were used to that it became like a, there was a, a large divide between the two. And to the point where when you're in the world of Scala, you you can use Java libraries. You generally don't want to because they are not <laughs> written in the way that you want to do things. You know, right. Java libraries usually have a bunch of mutability. You're in the world of Scala, you want immutability, just right. as one example. And so sure. So, yeah, I think the paradigms is where you get into the friction. And the one paradigm where where there there is, I think, some friction between Java and Kotlin is when you get into coroutines in Kotlin. Because now you've got this whole hmm. different async model in Kotlin, and it, that particular piece doesn't interoperate to Java. If you have coroutine code you can't just call that coroutine code from Java and expect it to, to work normally. So you, what you end up having to do is, is expose the coroutines as some Java async library, you know, RX Java, Reactor, whatever. And so then you have to create additional API endpoints that wrap the, the coroutines. In the case of Google, Google is using coroutines in a number of places. But in the places that are kind of uh, interoperating heavily with Java, Google has its own async framework that they use across you know a lot of Google, and you can use that on both the Kotlin side and on the Java side. And so it kind of depends on which async paradigm you're using. And if you are using coroutines in Kotlin, then you definitely do have a paradigm mismatch uh, and an interoperability mismatch where there would be higher friction. Um, but you don't have to use coroutines. You could stick with you know any of the other Java-based um, async frameworks and not have that particular friction but that i mean that honestly sounds to me kind of like your traditional like framework mismatch you know like if you're if you're using you know one one framework over here and then you're trying to introduce code with code base that use a different one yeah then there are going to be some incompatibilities like that yeah exactly right yeah yeah that's interesting so scala is an interesting case study because uh, yeah i remember that when scala came out the sort of like Java plus plus angle was, was kind of a significant part of the pitch. And then also there was kind of the pitch of like, but then if you want, you can take it in this sort of functional direction, but like do it very incrementally. Yeah. 
which seemed like a pretty plausible, like interesting way to go. <laughs> and but I think from that what that's I've... how like half of the community did get into Scala, right. myself included. I came from Java into Scala. And when I first started writing Scala, I was writing my Scala just like I wrote my Java, just right. without semicolons. I call it Java without semicolons. <laughs> and then I, I, over years, learned how to kind of write Scala in the Scala way. So I was able to go on that incremental uh, path and luckily had a mentors and people that kind of helped me along that journey. And now the Scala code that I write is nothing at all like the Java code that I would write. Like so, so far deviated at this point. But yeah. Then there's the other segment of Scala, which comes from the Haskell world. And th they went through a similar journey of like trying to write Scala like Haskell. Yep. And then, then uh, some portion of them have, have kind of pivoted and decided, Hey, let's not try to make Scala into Haskell. Let's let Scala be Scala and um, do things in the Scala way. So. Interesting. Yeah. Paths. So, so I, 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 my perception is that today there's, there's sort of like Scala camp is, um, or sorry, Scala community is divided into like two kind of camps. Maybe, uh, one is the, like, I want to be doing Haskell, but I can't find a company that will pay me to do Haskell. So I'm going to do Scala and yep. try to pretend that it's Haskell. Yep. And then another camp being, I like Scala for Scala and I want to try and embrace Scala's, you know, like the, the Scala way of doing things. Yeah. Yeah. But the like Scala as Java plus plus, it seems like has kind of fallen oh, by the wayside, and I'm guessing that Kotlin is a big is a big part for of sure. That. Yeah, yeah. I think most people that just want a better Java, they've embraced Kotlin at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, they're not not looking at Scala for that. And I, you know, I love Scala. I'm I'm working on a Scala three book. Like there, there's a lot of really great things that I enjoy in the Scala language, and. I think for, for a lot of people, especially Java developers, Scala is just way too far of a leap. And it took me many years mm -hmm. to kind of get to where I am with Scala. And I don't think most people are willing to kind of put that amount of effort into just learning a language and, you know, a whole new paradigm and, and all that. So, yeah, I think that's that's where Kotlin definitely has has a leg up is that it's much more much more approachable. The on-ramp is much smoother for people. The paradigms are, most of them are very similar. There is a few that are, that are different and, and that you have to learn, but, but I think it's, it's a much more gradual frictionless path from, from Java yeah. to Kotlin and from Java to Scala. For sure. Yeah. I think like going back to that term you used earlier, like, like, you know, incremental progress versus like, you know, I think you said revolutionary progress, maybe something like that. <laughs> yeah. Evolutionary or revolutionary. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think it's interesting that, yeah, I mean, th th there is definitely an element of there's, there's a ceiling to how much progress you can make without starting over from yeah, scratch. Exactly. exactly. But at the same time, you know, starting over from scratch does mean that you have a much harder road to get any amount of adoption at all. That's right. And I think probably the the language that uh i i am perhaps most surprised about that it, that has gotten a lot of adoption despite being very clearly start over from scratch revolutionary is rust yeah yeah i don't think you know if you if you went back and looked at the crop of languages that were just coming out right when rust came out yeah and and if you said like oh yeah this this one's someday going to be a mainstream programming language yeah. the one with the linear types and the you know like ml background original compiler <laughs> yeah. written in ocaml yeah you know i i don't think anybody would have called that one <laughs> yeah no i i agree rust definitely has surprised me in in you know its ability to to get so much adoption and be pretty revolutionary in in a number of ways yeah and I think part of that is that, I, honestly, I don't think that any of the other solutions in that particular space of like systems programming, I don't think any of them were very good. And so I think <laughs> that part of it is that Rust has done really well because it's actually really good. Like, yeah, I, I don't do a whole lot of systems programming. It's not my cup of tea. But from what I hear of like the world of C++, like I don't want to touch it. Like I am not yeah. at all interested in C++. Go, I've done a decent amount with. And the simplicity is nice, but I I want I want more I want more assistive amazing tools in my programming languages than mm -hmm. Go gives me. Like like I, the, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's certainly something to be said for the simplicity of it, but man, I sure like having, uh, inheritance and I like having 
immutability as a default. And I like having what else is there in Rust or in Go that I that I'm not a particular fan. I guess of. that has generics now, but that hasn't been true for a long right, time. Right? Yeah, you're right. Generics is a good example. Like I, I, I can't imagine programming like for real without generics. Like so, thankfully now they they have generics. So yeah, there's just a number of oh type classes like in Scala three. Like Scala three type classes are so good. Love type classes. And so there's just all these things where where I mon- monadic operations. Like whenever I have to do a list oriented collection oriented thing and go i'm like i feel like i'm going back to like the stone age i'm like give me my monads come on like like where's my flat map on this thing you know so yeah you know i get that you know they want to keep it simple and monads are hard and all that but but yeah i just so anyways i i feel like part of the reason why i rusted so well is just that the space was actually kind of bad like like poorly poorly um arcane in a in a way or or too That's, overly complex like C++ from what i hear is just like the surface area is just way too massive now that's that's interesting to me for two reasons that that idea one is that certainly I, I think there are lots of people who feel the same way you do about C plus plus they're like I don't want to go near this it's it's just terrifying um, and not necessarily it's terrifying because it's hard but maybe it's terrifying because it's just a big mountain of complexity that, exactly you know, maybe yeah. it gets me some amazing results but I don't want to climb that mountain if I could just stay over here and have a good time doing something else exactly. But at the same time, there's probably a subset of people who feel that way who are like, I would actually like to be able to write systems level stuff and like do these things. I just want to do it with much better ergonomics than what's available. Exactly. And granted, uh, I mean, I, I, I think I'd be curious to see. Th- it's interesting to think about what if there's an alternate reality where Zig comes out at the same time <laughs> as Rust does. And yeah. there's like sort of a, an obvious two two different very different philosophies yeah. but both nice languages in their own right like nice systems languages in their own right yeah you know what what happens there in terms of in terms of adoption but of yeah. course since zig is so much later it's it's you know, it's not no longer an yeah, apple I, mean, I think rest was kind of in the right place at the right time for sure and yeah and, and I mean, there are definitely... some other alternatives what's the new google one that's that's um the new uh carbon carbon that's right yeah yeah it's i like think there's some really great stuff really interesting stuff in carbon as well and you're if it had been around when rust came out the it likely could have gained a lot of traction maybe it's still now, well, no, it's as cool. i understand it uh, carbon is aiming to be a c plus 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 exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> which i don't know why they didn't go with that name that's right that's, c++ that rolls plus, off the tongue plus, plus. yeah i like that <laughs> yeah or like C4P or something, you know, just to abbreviate. <laughs> exactly. C plus carrot four. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, why aren't we in charge of naming things? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting to think about like, you know, what might have happened if you had, because I, I feel like with Scala and Clojure, those were two different, similarly, like philosophically different approaches, but both yeah. of them were kind of saying, Okay, what if you had JVM and then you all you did functional programming on it with seamless Java interop? They both offered that, but in very different ways, and they both got significant adoption. Not not the same level, I would say. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, yeah. But both like quite substantial communities for sure in their yeah. own right. And yeah. I granted, there's also a substantial Zig community. Obviously, Rust community is much larger, but yeah, interesting to think about how that yeah. how that might have gone. Yeah. Yeah, there was a the uh, GitHub Octoverse came out um, maybe a month or so ago, and they showed what the what the uh, fastest growing languages according to you know their study on GitHub mm. uh, was, and it was surprising. I don't remember the list exactly, but uh, Kotlin was on there, so that was good. Kotlin was like number eight or something, fastest growing. And then Rust, of I think Rust was even number one or like very near Could the be. top. And then a bunch of them were systems programming languages, which was which was fascinating. Uh, and then there was like I think HCL, the uh, the HashiCorp configuration language oh. was on there, and um, of course Python was on there. And so it was an interesting list. TypeScript was on there, of course. So it was interesting to see like like if you kind of segment that list into systems programming, kind of more app oriented programming, app dev servers, that kind of stuff a lot of the growth was actually in the systems programming space or a lot of the ones on the list. So that was fascinating. Yeah. But, 
Which is cool. I mean, it, systems programming has been, it seems like to me, pretty stagnant at a language level for a very right. long time. I mean, it's finally some exciting things have happening. In yeah, that space, I mean, like so. I got I got into programming in the early 1990s, and back then it was like you know C and C plus plus reign supreme, and yeah. like you know early 2000s C and C plus plus reign supreme. Early 2010s, C and C plus plus reign supreme, and Rust yeah. kind of just just was just like creeping onto the scene, and so now to finally see some actual like real competition in that space is really cool. It is well, and great language innovation, I think, is what what excites me because, like, I don't know, as I was kind of saying before, I like to use tools that are that are more, I don't know, help me do my job faster. Yeah, <laughs> and and it it bothers me when i see stagnation in the tooling space at least in like an accessible way because certainly there's always lots of things happening you know new programming languages and all that but uh, it's great when when a mass of developers can get their hands on new and better tools and better programming languages i think are a big part of that it's like yeah oh my god i'm so glad that rust developers have like type classes that they can use because what a what a great tool to give them to help them be more productive and just as an example so yeah i'm just thankful when there's innovation in languages that's accessible to people yeah definitely i i also think about like, so definitely using nicer tools is, is one piece of what excites me about new languages, but actually like paradoxically, one of the things that most excites me about, again, talking about like revolutionary versus evolutionary languages is one of the things that makes it hardest for them to get off the ground, which is building ecosystems on new foundations. Yeah. yeah. Like when I think about what is it about Rust that's so appealing compared to say a C++, certainly a big part of it is if I've just got the Rust standard library and my compiler, there's a lot that's that's compelling right there. Yeah. However, what's much more compelling to me overall, in like you know a big picture sense, is that there are so many libraries and packages and stuff that I can yeah. pull off the shelf yeah. that do extremely complicated things, but in a way where I'm like, this is, I, I'm not worried that this is going to seg fault. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't think that's going to happen to me. And, and generally speaking, that's, that's my experience. In fact, yeah. the only time that I remember using a rust package that did segmentation fault, like on, on any, I mean, really ever was one that was wrapping a gigantic C plus plus library. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And like th- that opportunity to say, let's build a new package ecosystem yeah. from scratch. On the one hand, it's like, wow. So you're going to start off with nothing and nobody's going to want to use your thing. But yeah. on the other hand, if you do actually manage to get that built up, it's suddenly you have this much nicer ecosystem. Yeah. And those I think are inextricable. I don't, I don't yeah. think you can have the one without the other um, without saying like, no, we, we have to start from scratch and build up this ecosystem from scratch if we want to get the benefit of having a much nicer, nicer ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, the, I don't know the, there's so have. many different aspects to, to that, but the ecosystem is, that is a huge part of the value of any given platform programming platform is what exists in the ecosystem so that I can build better stuff more quickly. And, and we've, I think node was one of the ones that first said like, Hey, let's make publishing packages super easy. And they did. And kind of to a fault for maybe making it a little bit too easy and, (laughs) and making some mistakes with, like a case sensitivity of packages and some of that, you know, early on, but, but anyways, <laughs> uh, they, they definitely did a good job of saying like sharing, sharing packages, sharing code is an essential part of the ecosystem. So let's make sure that, that that is done fairly well. Right. And I think, I don't know if you've, you've ever published a library to Maven central, the open source no. repository for, for the world of Java and Kotlin and Scala and all that. It is it the bar is high enough that I think that they've had very few security incidents because it is such a pain to get a library published into Maven Central. <laughs> like you you have to file a bug on a Jira, you you have to create and publish your um, PGP keys. Like, like it's it's not just npm publish, you know. Like, right. like it's it's definitely trickier t- 
than that, which I think has some trade-offs. It kind of like is a, the roller coaster. You have to be this tall to ride this ride kind of thing. Right. Like, like, the Java ecosystem has has a little bit higher bar for publishing libraries than than some of the other ecosystems, but I'm gl- grateful that newer programming platforms have made it easier to publish libraries, and that's been kind of a core part of how they've grown the ecosystem. So this is really interesting to me because I, I was actually so I have not published anything to Maven, but I have uh, read up about how it's done because I've been working on designs to try to figure out like how should we do it in Rock. Yeah. And right now we have a very simple URL based like way to distribute packages. Although it's more security conscious than any of the others that I know about, <laughs> which is that when you publish a URL based package, uh, sorry, if you want to use a URL based package and say like, Hey, I want to get this package from this URL. The end of the URL has to be a hash, hash. of okay. the contents of I the would, file. I was just yeah. going to bring up how wrong Go did this and how <laughs> Go ecosystem did such a horrible job of pinning to master and oh man, just just mistakes all over the place and and, uh, and then dealing with, you know, redirects and, you know, what happens when that repo goes away, your build failed. Like like there's so many there's so many challenges in, in this. It seems like a really simple problem. Oh, just like upload some files to somewhere. Right. It, it actually is a lot harder problem. That. Yeah, and and now like the secure pl- supply chain stuff, you know, is becoming a big concern. So how do you secure the supply chain around all this kind of stuff? Is yet another piece. So yeah, so so when I was looking around at different designs, there were definitely elements of the way that Maven does stuff with like the PGP keys and whatnot that seemed pretty appealing to me. Like specifically, it seemed like so so one way you can say uh, answer the question of is the person who publish the most recent release of this package. Like let's say they published a patch release and you want to do, you know, version ranges. You want to say, I support, you know, X, X, Y, and Z versions of this package. You want to be kind of confident that like, they're all, you know, trustworthy. Like you've, you've vetted one version of the code base. You don't want to have to go back and revet every single patch release and and look at, you know, all the notes or, or all the, all the diffs. (laughs) Yeah. And so there's definitely an element of trust there. And the question is like, how do you have confidence that it yeah. actually is the same person? And one of the problems with like arbitrary URLs is that they expire. And yeah. like, you yeah. know, even if you might it's say, mutable. oh, well, I'll just, it's mutable. Right, I'll, I'll never let it expire. I'll never let my URL expire. And also I'll never, like my machine will never get compromised. Right. But there's definitely an element of like, okay, yes, but like, you know, humans expire eventually yeah. so like you know <laughs> i i may not you know have plans in place for like yeah. what happens to my doing domain names eventually the registration lapses some malicious person takes it over and now they can publish malicious patch releases to all of yeah. the stuff i've ever published right yeah yeah we've seen an npm a few interesting attacks kind of along the, that vein so one thing one interesting thing in the world of maven that i was surprised by was that when you sign something uh, your artifacts in maven you you use a key that has an email address in it mm-hmm. and i was always like oh that's great you know but then it turns out i discovered years ago but discovered there's no actual validation of that email address <laughs> and yeah. so, like like it's kind of you can anyone can create a key with any email address in it and, and sign it and so there's no actual kind of identity association there which is kind of unfortunate whereas github they do something with their signing where when you when you create a signing key and give it to github with an email address in it they they then like actually verify that you own that email address of course there is the problem that emails can change ownership but at least there's some verified identity association and and the github ui actually indicates on a commit that's signed if the email that it's associated with is verified and so they do huh. some nice things there I didn't even but remember that. I set that up so long ago. I didn't even remember that. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe they it's, did it after I, I set it up. Yeah. So there's definitely, I, I think it is an interesting piece of the package management puzzle is like, how do you, how do you verify that you can trust the thing that you're consuming? Right. And, and that's, there's a lot of different pieces to that. Of course. And the PGP key, although, you know, there's, there's different ways you could do that. You don't have to literally say you have to use a separate, like PGP tool, you could incorporate it into your own, you know, package, uh, like CLI. Yeah. But, but just the idea that like, you know, it's a second factor, right? It's like, you not only have to own the domain, but also you have right. to have this, this private key, but then you get into questions of, okay, 
what happens if someone loses their private key? Yeah. Yeah. And the only answer I've come up with so far is it's just like, make a new package. <laughs> like that's it. You, you know, you lost the key. There's yeah. no, there's no backup. The, the one, the one thing that I'd wish had happened in this space was, do you remember Keybase? They, I don't know what's, what's mm-hmm. happened to them lately. They kind of, I, I remember it. Like yeah. That. I had hoped that Keybase could become the foundation for some of this because what Keybase had done is they'd formed this like graph of trust and the graph of trust wasn't just about the PGP keys. It was also about specific machines. And so when you were signing something with, with Keybase, you were signing it, not just as your PGP key, but also as a machine. And so Mm. you kind of had the, you could triangulate kind of identity for a given signed artifact in a number of different ways. And then they also had the social network piece of it where it's like, oh, I know Richard and I trust Richard. And so now you and I like have this trust relationship that we've defined that then so I I thought that Keybase could, could really make a huge dent in this whole space of, of can I trust this thing that I'm consuming? But yeah, because I mean, somebody could go on, I, I'm going to pick Maven. I, I don't really, I don't really know how like usernames work on Maven, but let's say someone creates an RT Feldman account on Maven. I don't have that. Like somebody else could do that. I'm yeah. not going to go around registering that name, you know, and, and everything eagerly just in case someone tries to impersonate me yeah. and they could just pretend to be me. And then like, be like, oh yeah, you trust me, right? You know, you know me from this, that, and the other thing. And, and then people, someone's like, oh yeah, he's a trustworthy guy, but it's, it's just not me at all. It's just yeah. like, that's, that's yeah. just the, you know. So the one <laughs> interesting thing that Maven Central does in this respect is when you file that JIRA ticket, you are claiming the ability to publish under a given group ID. So for me, org.webjars or com.jamesward. And they actually do validate that that you own that reversed domain. That and, domain, yeah. You know, back to the problem of like the, the domain can change ownership and all that. But that course, does yeah. protect the, against the ability for some random person to go create com.google artifacts and publish them of course yeah and so there is some validation kind of of correlated identity there that maven central does that is nice but but yeah hard it takes it takes work Uh, you know somebody's got to go review every jira ticket so in order to publish (laughs) to maven central so a human has to go do this very validation do you know what happens if somebody says hey i lost my private key like I, I can't, I can't sign things anymore. Uh, can you, can you let so me? You can, so one? on Maven Central, you can sign with any key. They, they do zero key validation. Oh, wow. It just has to be published onto one of the the public key servers. So that's one of the unfortunate things. There's no, you never upload like your keys to. You never associate your Maven Central account to your keys in any way. And so that's huh. definitely one of the downsides of the model of Maven Central is that what you sign with could be any key. They don't care. You just have to sign it, which is unfortunate. Huh. Okay. Well, I guess that solves the problem of what do you do if you lose one? <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I'd written something where I'd made it so that I do automated publishing from from a GitHub action to Maven Central. And it was just easier to create and publish a new key every single release than, than it was to like, like I think at the time there wasn't like secrets for GitHub actions or something. Anyways, it yeah. was just easier to create a basically disposable key every on every release and sign it with it and never use it again. <laughs> Yeah, that actually ended up kind of being, and you know, this is just sort of like a draft design, but uh, that that ended up being something that made me less worried about the what if you lose your private key is like, well, you can always, you know, if you're setting up releases through GitHub Actions anyway, then it's going to be stored in GitHub's, you know, secrets anyway. So yeah. if you ever lose your laptop or, you know, it gets stolen or whatever. It's not like you're totally hosed. It's like, you know, well, it's, it's up there in the cloud, you know, and GitHub. That was, so that was the other cool thing about Keybase, back to key, the way that Keybase did it, is that you would register a, register a bunch of different, different things that authenticate you. And right. if you ever lost one, it didn't matter because, you know, like, I don't know that what their rules were, but you could basically... It, it, get rid of one of a private key or whatever, and then add a new one because you had other ways to verify your identity. And, you know, like they had Twitter, you could like go verify your identity through Twitter, through whatever. So there was one of them. Exactly. Right. And so there's just kind of multiple ways to triangulate to you being the person that you claim you are. And so I think that helped deal with that problem of lost keys in a, in a decent way. Yeah. Which is a cool idea. Although, yeah, I, I, 
I remember vaguely, like there was a, there was a period in time where like all my friends were publishing, Hey, I I'm verifying myself on Keybase. Here's my yep, key yeah. and everything. <laughs> on and all of like, their platforms on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on whatever. Yeah. <laughs> my mom probably commented on my Facebook post and was like, what in the world does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but it's like, like you said, I mean, I, I don't know what ended up happening to it because it doesn't seem like, uh, at least none of those same friends are doing that anymore right. and, or, yeah. or, or using yeah. Keybase for anything as yeah. far as I know. Yeah. So, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. So back to the systems programming thing. One of the things that I'm interested in is, is there is the possibility of multi-platform programming languages ever going to like pan out? So this is like the reason why I've been interested in this is that Kotlin has the ability to write apps for Android, write servers, write web apps, right? You know, whatever, but also you can use Kotlin and run it through LLVM. They use LLVM underneath the covers and target native. And the binaries are pretty small. The, you know, you don't get all the Java stuff because obviously you're not on the JVM. So it's a, it's a slim down kind of version of what people are used to with Kotlin. But it, is there this possibility where some of these higher level languages that were not initially targeted at being systems languages can can reach into that space or are these two worlds so different that that you know that's just not really a viable option i think it's a great question i I think it depends uh on your use case probably so if you're for example building an operating system eh, probably not (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) but actually i mean one of the things that i had one of the use cases i specifically had in mind with rock is something that i think fits right into what you're talking about which is sometimes you have uh, an application where there are very, very, very performance critical sections and maybe huge performance critical sections. But then there's also some cases where you kind of just want a little bit of scripting and you want the, the ability to write something in a more ergonomic, faster, easier way than a systems language and safer too, probably. Or at least like you, you don't have to take as much care uh, to get the safety. So I'm thinking about like a text editor, for example, yeah. like you have like Vim written in C and then you have yeah. Vim plugins written in Lua or like you yeah. know, NeoVim supports yeah. that now. Yeah, This is something where I've, I, I've always wanted a functional language that can be used for plugin type stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, like a, the original joke link name for rock was typed pure functional Lua. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> because yeah, like that, that, that's something that I've always wanted whenever I'm like, Oh, I want to write a Vim plugin. I'm like, I don't want to write Vim script. And honestly, I don't really even want to write Lua. I, I'd love right. to use an Elm like language to do this. And I, you know, when well, as a plugin author, like, like you likely don't have to have the same performance characteristics as the, the foundation. And exactly. so, yeah. So being able to have a foundation that's written in the kind of more system oriented language, but then have the plugin model be higher level. Yeah, I think that's that that's a good goal for sure. I think I mean you see that with like like Lua and also with Python. I, I've actually been kind of looking into recently like what are the characteristics that make a language successful at being embeddable? And it mm. seems like one of the one of them is having a very minimalistic sort of stateful runtime, or ideally basically no stateful runtime, as opposed to, for example, having to spin up an entire VM. Uh, yeah. and, and also bundle an entire VM with your, you know, yeah. little plugin or like inclusion in this other language. Yeah. Like for example, if I want to use JavaScript for a scripting language on top of Vim or whatever else, that means that somehow the entire V8, you know, runtime has to get shipped along with that thing, which is a, a pretty big uh, yeah. barrier. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can see why people often reach for, oh, let me just like like put together a little declarative language in JSON or YAML or whatever. Like why they reach for that is because then you just, you get your your interpreter for that, that little declarative thing. And all of a sudden you're, you know, you're, you, it's a very thin layer to go from interpreting that stuff to to doing what you need with it. The problem with that, which I just hate that our industry keeps creating declarative languages for all these different things, is that the those declarative languages, you hit the barrier so quickly with what you can do with right. them. And then you end up doing crazy stuff. Like, I don't know if you've seen all the things that will like generate your YAML for you for Kubernetes. Like, Oh, I need a loop. <laughs> I need yep. a loop in my YAML. Well, YAML doesn't support loops. So now I need to like use 
HCL or, you know, some other language to then generate my YAML. It's just like, like, this is just hideous. Like the state that we're in around this, like let's use better foundational languages for these embedded little pieces. And I am with you that functional languages should be this. Like this is where I think the 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 Nick stuff is really interesting. Uh, yeah. The doll language is really interesting. Like yeah, we have, is cool. uh, it's like like we have a path that we know can can get us the same declarative nature, but do it in a way where we're not totally hamstrung and then hit the wall and have to you know rebuild the world. So yeah, that's that's where I would love to see more innovation is exactly on these kind of embeddable languages piece because I think that what we're doing, what generally we're doing today, is just a, a total disaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, like generating configuration files is, is a pretty interesting topic, just in the sense of like, yeah, like you said, it it seems so straightforward until you get sufficiently complicated configuration files, and then you you get really basic things like code reuse, where you're yeah. like, well. It's really important to me that this section of the config matches this other section of the config. And, yep. Okay, maybe a variable is sufficient, but in some other cases, it's like, well, what I really want is a function because yeah. it's actually exactly. slightly different here and slightly different there, but they need to share some things. Yep. And it's like, you know, as soon as you want functions, it's like, all right, well, you know, yep. <laughs> yep. you, wanna, you don't yep. want a, a static language anymore. Yeah. Well, and the, the, thing that you always hear about declarative languages touted is like, oh, it's declarative, so the tooling will be great. And I have yet to see great tooling around any declarative ah. language. Like they, it, the tooling, like no one ever builds, actually builds the great tooling. And so it's always touted as being like, oh, it's declarative, so we can build great tooling. And then the, the great tooling never comes. And right, I'm we like, can, but we don't. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so it's like, let's start with just a better language with better tooling out of the box. And you use that and yeah so i think build definitions like cluster definitions like kubernetes like there's so many different workflow i part of my thinking around this this whole thing comes from the fact that i a long time ago built my own workflow engine and of course i'm like oh well now i need a language to define my workflows let me just write my own uh-huh. and so i created my own <laughs> json workflow language and then of course i i i hit the slippery slope of like oh now i need conditional logic now i need loops now like and all of a sudden i see myself just like sliding down this is uh, brian gets has a great tweet about this that now i call Getz's law where he says like every declarative language like slowly slides towards being a terrible general purpose language <laughs> and i experienced that myself and i'm like okay like we need to just stop doing these like oh it's just this little declarative language solves this one little problem like no let's start with a good embeddable general purpose language and and work kind of backwards from there yeah, so if mean, you if you figure out a solution for this problem with Rock, I'm I'm 100 with you. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, we we did already actually have kind of an an amusing uh, example of this. So I was mentioning that like Rock Glue thing earlier. So one of the questions we had early on, like the original design for Rock Glue, was we we're trying to solve the specific problem of like, okay, there's like realistically three different types of low level languages that you might want to bind to. One is C, obviously, another is Rust, and another is Zig. There's like obvious demand for those. Now, at this point, we were not really thinking about like, oh, you could do this with Ruby and Python and them because they all have C interop. But um, we're just really thinking about those three. And so I was saying, well, but I don't really want to couple the rock compiler to like three specific other programming languages. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah. So how can we make this more flexible? And then one idea that came up was, well, we could uh, generate a you know, say, give me a, a declarative language, you know, like a JSON or something like that a way to specify, you know, here's the, like the outputs that I want for these particular inputs. Right. And that was like, well, okay. I mean, that's, we could do that or, or we could, uh, we could generate, we could, we could spit out JSON and just say like, here, here is a JSON representation of your types. Go yeah. ahead and run whatever tool you want to generate your bindings. Yeah. Which didn't seem, you know, as ergonomic. <laughs> and then at some point it was like, well, wait a minute, rock can already do all this. Why don't we just say, give me a dot rock file. We'll give it as an argument your types and then you can yep. just return you know the strings that you want to write out to disk and that's it <laughs> awesome and Great. and yeah because because you know rock has this ability to like limit the primitives you can use like the io primitives and stuff we can just say like yeah it's not gonna 
do anything else you can right it's not going to go fetch something from the network and yeah right. you can constrain it we can, yeah. so you we can we can say like you know you can trust if you get one of these scripts from somebody else on the internet we can put constraints on it like guaranteed there is no way that this thing is going to do anything other than yeah. write to subdirectories of the output you know <laughs> folder that's that you great. give it that's it that's all it can do yeah yeah, yeah that was something that doll opened my eyes to is that ability to like constrain a language so that so that you you have that ability to trust that okay this thing's not going to go off and do things i don't expect and yeah. so does rock have the ability to like know if something is a pure function or oh yeah so so then yeah you've got the foundation for it you're like hey you know all that you can do in these rock files that are used in this way is pure functions and you're good yeah it's great i mean that's 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 basically how, how it works awesome. yeah i i think that's that peace of mind, like it, it kind of reminds me of Rust, although, I mean, it's funny in, in the case of Rust because like, you know, there's this unsafe keyword and you can use that to do CFFI, which means that like technically from a guarantees perspective, Rust is not actually any safer than C because you can literally have your C inside your Rust. Yeah. Um, however, in practice, it does work out that people tend to use that keyword very rarely unless they're doing like, you know, in, yeah. interop with a significant, you know, C or C++ library or whatever. But, but the ability to have sort of peace of mind around like this category of problems is not something I need to worry about is great. I love that. Yeah, exactly. And from a security perspective, I think you do need more than just a convention like you have in Rust. I think if I want to say like, yeah. this is something I can depend on for from a security perspective, like I actually do not need to run this in a VM because even if someone is malicious, yeah. they, they just can't do anything. They, they don't yeah. have an escape hatch. I think is really valuable. And that's that's like been one of the big uh, sort of, I don't know, central principles of like interop and rock is that you you can create these guarantees that are really, really easy to like look at and be like, okay, these this entire category of security exploits cannot happen. I don't have to worry about them. It's not possible. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, we certainly don't want to go back to the the ease of code injection attacks that existed, you know, many years ago. And so, so yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's good to have, have the ability to do those constraints. And I think that's part of the reason why people reach for the declarative languages is then you have an yep. implicit, you know, way to, to control what, what can be done, but. Right. JSON's just, inert. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, hopefully there's, there's continued progress on this where I kind of want to see it make some dents is a sequel to me is such an abomination. I know people <laughs> love SQL, but I want better tools than SQL. Like I want to be able to share, I want to be able to take a piece of my query and have it defined as a reusable function. Like just something as simple as that. Like not not really possible in SQL, but with DAL, if you were using something like DAL, you could have a safe query language that had reusable pieces that you could pull in reusable pieces from external places and and actually have reuse in your queries. <laughs> you know, it's just that's just one place where I'm like, we've got to make some progress on the embedded programming language side of things because what we have today is is terrible. Well, what's funny there is that actually, I mean, you can write reusable logic in SQL. It's just that you have to write it in more SQL. So if you're already not a fan of SQL, that's not a great answer. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would say if if I were, uh, I have not personally used it, but if I were a closure programmer, this is the part where I assume I would recommend Datomic <laughs> yeah. because, as I understand it, that you can do those things in Datomic uh, and, yeah. and others. Yeah. I so one I've used this library in Scala called Quill, and it's it's a Scala library that uses macros to generate SQL code. And so you write your Scala code as like a normal collection operation, you know, monadic thing. So you like say like from whatever, and then that's a monad. So then you like flat map, you know, something else. And so you like build up your query, but using like standard Scala code. And you can also, of course, reuse any piece of that, like. It's all just Scala, but then the macro generates at compile time the SQL underneath the covers. So you can do these like complicated joins that I have no idea how to actually come up with a SQL <laughs> to do, and yet I can write the Scala code that says like, okay, here's how we're going to join. Like you know, do it through through that way. 
and reuse it. And so I've been a huge fan of like the Quill approach to writing SQL, um, which is for me not to write SQL. It's for me to write some better language that's reusable and testable and you know whatever, and then have this really smart person named Alexander figure out in the macro how to, you're probably familiar with quoted the idea of quoted stuff. Anyways, he got, he he uses this quoted syntax to transform the AST of the Scala query into an, an optimized SQL query. So it's very clever, but so much better of a way to do things, in my opinion, than, writing, <laughs> than me writing SQL or anyone. I, writing so SQL. I, I have not used that personally, but honestly, I've had a lot of bad experiences with like things of that shape in the past. So so often that I'm just like, just give me raw SQL, but. <laughs> But maybe that one would change my mind if I tried it. <laughs> it's I, I've done um, quite a bit with it, and like you, have always run into the places where these systems fall over in some way. And I had I have not reached that with Quill, where the thing fell over. And it even got to the point where with Quill, I was doing you know in Postgres how you can do the Postgres JSON stuff, like oh, sure, like yeah. the JSON based queries like inside of your your SQL queries. Like I got to the point where I was even doing that in Scala. Wow! And and it all worked. I was I was really it, it took some work. It was you know a little bit uncharted territory, but I was impressed that I didn't like in many of these other ORM or whatever. Um, approaches, I didn't hit it, hit the the barrier where I had to drop down to just writing um, raw SQL. So, wow, so, but very impressive. Yeah, yeah. your mileage may vary. <laughs> <All right. laughs> awesome. Yeah. Wow, we, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, is there anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? We could go on a whole tangent about UI programming and how <laughs> how UI programming needs to have a functional programming foundation at some point. You know, like oh, home, we could do a whole other uh, episode on that. I bet, but I, <laughs> that's the whole other area where I'm still just frustrated by the current state of things. Is like, like Elm did such a good job of being like, no, you can build UIs with functional programming, and it's awesome, and it, it just still hasn't caught on. You know, like, like as <laughs> like the 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 mass, you know, the masses who are building UIs still are generally not using functional programming to do it, and I think that's a whole nother area that I would love to see some some progress on. But yeah. <laughs> or, or you know, if you're at least if you're targeting the browser, you could just use Elm. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, well, that's that's fun. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for joining me, James. This is, yeah, this is a great conversation. Me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs>